0: Hello everyone and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies. I'm Crawford Gribbon, host of the channel. Today we're going to be talking to Brian Stanley. Brian is Professor of World Christianity at the U- University of Edinburgh and we're going to be talking to Brian about his new book, Christianity in the 20th Century, which has been published by Princeton University. Uh, Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Hello everybody. Thanks for your time this morning, Brian. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your situation at Edinburgh, the kinds of things you've been working on in the past leading up to this book?
1: Okay, well, I'm Professor of World Christianity at Edinburgh, which is, sounds rather an ambitious title, but basically that means uh, a focus on Christianity and its diverse local incarnations all over the globe, but a, especially in the global south. Um, by background, I'm a historian of Christian mission. Uh, I did a PhD at Cambridge on the domestic base of the early Victorian missionary movement, so I've come into this field from the European end in a sense, studying how British Christians especially began to uh, become enthusiastic, some of them even obsessed with the cause of spreading Christianity to the rest of the world. Uh, and in my teaching responsibilities, I've gradually had to broaden from being a historian of Christian missions to being a historian and even to some extent a theological interpreter of the enormous explosion of Christianity in the non-Western world over the last half century. So my work has gradually moved from 19th into more 20th century topics.
0: Now you mentioned there, Brian, the extraordinary explosion of Christianity over the last half century or so. And that's very much the the subject of your book, isn't it? Christianity in the 20th Century. Could you tell us how you came to write this book?
1: Yes. Well, the first thing to say is I didn't volunteer to do it. I would never have dreamt dreamt of uh, attempting such uh, a broad-ranging and difficult book to structure. So um, I was approached by Princeton University Press, uh, and they uh, are planning... Uh, a whole series of books on the world history of Christianity through the centuries, and I think this is actually the first to appear, so we're starting at the end, um, they approached me and after some humming and hawing, I decided to, to give it a go. Uh, so that was back in 2011 they approached me, so it's, it's had quite a long gestation period as one would expect with a book of this range.
0: You describe in the preface, uh, Brian, that the book is, and I quote you, quite an impossible book. Uh, There's an extraordinary range of of theme and geography and theological content as well in here. Um, What was the biggest challenge as a writer facing uh, the problem of how to distill a century of global religious history?
1: I think probably the biggest challenge was knowing how to structure such a wide-ranging and complex story. Um, yeah, obviously, one can try and write a broadly chronological approach, but if you're covering the whole world, that becomes quite impossible. Um, the more obvious alternative would have been to go for a, a straight regional approach and, and that's how most other books that deal with world Christianity today do it. They um, solemnly go around the world with a chapter on each major region, um, but I th- think what you lose by that is, is any sense of the extraordinary interconnectedness of themes and developments uh, across the world. So in the end, I decided to do something perhaps more difficult, but I think ultimately much more interesting and illuminating, which was to take uh, 15 major themes and illuminate each of them by two case studies usually drawn from different parts of the world so they're generally contrasting regional case studies of a single theme and they're putting in juxtaposition parts of a world that wouldn't perhaps normally be uh, considered in relation to one another and that produces some illuminating comparisons and contrasts. They're not necessarily supposed to be parallels, but um, they're supposed to illuminate by, by difference as much as by similarity. And I hope that works. I mean, that, that was the, um, the line I decided to go for, uh, and it makes a quite an interesting approach.
0: Certainly, uh, some of the comparisons you have are extraordinarily striking. Uh, I was particularly um, in- intrigued by the contrast you draw between America and some of the Scandinavian countries in terms of secularisation. Yeah. But we'll be talk about that um, later on. Um, right at the beginning of the book, page one to two, you use the word hubristic twice. Uh, you describe the title of the Christian cent- Century as a, as, a, as a very hubristic um, choice of title, and you talk mm-hmm. about the sense of cultural hubris that many Christian denominations or communities had at the beginning of the 20th century. Could you explain what you mean by that?
1: Well, I think in both Protestant and Catholic circles, but perhaps particularly Protestant, uh, around the first decade of the 20th century, there was uh, a fusion of the general Western sense of progress, modernization, the evolution of the world into what was thought to be a modern western pattern a fusion between that and the Christian imperative to bring the gospel to the world Uh, and that fusion tended to lead to um, some rather glib assumptions about the future shape of world Christianity and indeed the future shape of the world that it was going to be conform to a broadly Western understanding of what the Christian faith would look like. And in many ways, the the World Missionary Conference at Edinburgh in 1910, which I've also written, uh, was the most obvious example of how that hubris translated itself um, into uh, actual statement, although there were always uh, voices beginning to question the hubris and beginning to add doses of realism, which gradually became stronger, especially after the First World War.
0: I'm glad you ended uh, your comments Mm -hmm. there by referring to the First World War because, again, one of the striking contrasts in the early part of the book is that contrast between the 1910 Edinburgh Conference Mm -hmm. and what happens, what's happening exactly at that moment, and which breaks out into war, mm. uh, only a matter of four years later or so. But why did you choose to begin the first chapter by uh, structuring your history of Christianity around the First World War?
1: I suppose it's partly a response to the general periodization among historians, which is to suggest that the 20th century didn't really begin until 1914, um, and of over a, sound reasons for that in terms of the sort of breakup of a general um post eighteen fifteen European structure of power, um, there is the danger that it implies that uh the war was for one watershed that changed everything. Uh and I've tried to suggest that although it was extraordinarily important, in many ways it accentuated and um Intensified trends that were already apparent even before 1914. Um, I mean, one other reason for beginning then is that increasingly historians are emphasising that the First World War was not just a European conflict; it had enormous implications for Africa, for the Middle East, uh, for South Asia. Uh, it really was a world war um, and indeed for Australasia as well with the enormous role of uh, Australian and New Zealand troops. So uh, I I think it it was the obvious place to begin, but I've tried to pull back from saying that it was was the one watershed that changed everything.
0: Sure, sure. And and alongside that, very international scope to the opening chapter. You also have a very strong emphasis on the importance of regionalisms and nationalisms in, yes. the, in the formation of the century. Could you talk us through some of the themes that you thought were important in that regard? I
1: mean, nationalism has obviously been a major uh, theme of historical work, both on the 19th and the 20th century, um, but not so often in explicit, explicit relation to Christianity. Um, so. One of the things I was trying to do was to show the variety of ways in which Christianity and emerging nationalism came into uneasy relationship, or sometimes what seemed like quite a, a happy symbiosis. Um, by and large, in Asia, uh, the emergence of nationalism uh, works against the progress of Christianity and uh, the nationalist reaction tends to uh, issue in quite strong anti-missionary, anti-Western Christian movements. But the, the one exception to that was the one I chose in chapter two when I looked at Korea, where Christianity actually forms quite Uh, an effective and powerful fusion with Korean nationalism in opposition to Asian colonialism, that is, Japanese colonialism. Uh, Then I put that in in juxtaposition with Poland, which is uh, an extraordinary example of a very deep fusion between uh, a European nationalism and Catholic identity and the way in which that sustained Polish spirits during uh, the very dark days, both of the Second World War and then of communist rule.
0: One of the very striking statements you make in these early chapters is that the Bible ceased to be a European book. Could you talk us through what you're gesturing towards in that kind of commentary?
1: One of the most important trends in the 20th century is the tremendous proliferation of Bible translation, something that Scholars of Christian missions are well aware of, but perhaps uh, wider scholars of non-European cultures tend not to take so much notice of, the increasing availability of the Bible and perhaps especially the Old Testament in a whole host of vernacular languages uh, opens up a whole new vista for non-European peoples. Um, you know, the Old Testament is in part a story of how one particular people uh, are elected by God and how that uh, election to a wider purpose uh, sustains them during uh, experiences of slavery, oppression, and exile. And those themes uh, proved extraordinarily resonant for many African and to some extent Asian Christians um, during the later years of colonialism. And so out of that um, interplay between the availability of the scriptures in their own language uh, and the actual political situation they were facing came new forms of theology, new forms of Christian interpretation. Uh, People began to draw parallels between uh, the status of Israel in uh, the Old Testament and the status of their own nation under British rule for example. So
0: as as Christian theology and experience begins to proliferate and becomes appropriated in an increasing number of very distinct cultures, how can we think about the big secularization narrative that sociologists and historians have proposed as the controlling narrative of 20th century uh, Christianity.
1: Yes, well, one of the uh, reasons for giving that theme quite a lot of prominence in the book is that most of the literature on secularization is still framed within a European and North American um, casing. There is still remarkably little Consideration of what happens to that narrative when you put it in in a global context. Um, so, most scholars of world Christianity would tend to say, well, the narrative begins to dissolve altogether. Um, that the uh, the dominant trend of the 20th century is the growing significance and diffusion of Christianity and its growing impact on political and social structures rather than the reverse, as most um, uh, sociologists looking at the European narrative would tend to say. On the other hand, um, I was also wanting to suggest that there may be certain parallels emerging in certain parts of the world where Um, where you have a dominant Christian tradition uh, that had something like monopolistic status in close association with a state, as, for example, in some of the South Sea Islands, then you can begin to see, if not secularization, at least the breakdown of those religious monopolies as different forms of Christianity And to some extent, different forms of religion then begin to assail that monopolistic status. Uh, And I also wanted to um, draw attention to some parts of Europe that seem to have been largely marginalized in the narrative on secularization, notably Scandinavia, uh, where the trend is uh, rather contrary to that uh, written about in uh, much of Western, much of the rest, most of the rest of Western Europe, for example.
0: Well, in, in that chapter, if you compare the United mm. states and Scandinavia, you, you contrast the familiar mantra of believing without belonging with uh, mm. a, a new kind of phenomenon that you identify, uh, which you call belonging without believing.
1: Yeah. Could, could you
0: talk us through that distinction?
1: Yes, uh, I'm not the first to come up with that phrase. Um, I tweaked it to say it's probably a case of belonging without much believing. What you find in most of the Scandinavian nations is a continuing extraordinary high level of popular adhesion to uh, the Lutheran churches, which at least originally were national established churches. A combination of that with extremely low levels of religious practice of actually going to church it contrasts for example with the UK uh, where uh, you know you actually have higher levels of uh, religious uh, adherence um, in terms of actual attendance but uh, a much uh, much attenuated role for the uh, uh, for the Church of England, for example. So, uh, Scandinavia is an interesting example of how um, in a certain form of modern secular social welfare society, um, the historic church has become sort of assimilated to that um, social welfare model. It, people are very happy to see a continuing role for the church, but it's, it's become quite a humanised, secularised sort of role.
0: You argue that churches have more to fear from cultural than from political varieties of the secular, page 101. Mm. What, what do you mean by that
1: one? I think, to begin with, the political varieties, um, yeah. you know, although the 20th century sees long and often very difficult battles between the church and oppressive states and overtly secular political movements in Soviet Russia, in China, of a different kind in France with the strong forces of anti-clericalism. The overall narrative seems to be that uh, those uh Political f- forms of opposition had comparatively little impact on the actual structure of believing. Uh, what seems to have been much more erosive of popular faith are the movements going on underneath the surface that Christians may not be particularly aware of may not be particularly alert to, and so the The cultural uh, undermining of Christian assumptions by uh, more implicit forms of secularity uh, I, I think have had much more to do with the decline of faith in much of the Western world than with than have the overtly political campaigns.
0: Interesting, interesting. Uh, You're very keen to break down the binary between a religious society and a secular society. And you use the case study of the United States to argue that societies Mm. can be both deeply religious and profoundly secular at the same time. Yeah. What what, what are you thinking of when you make that kind
1: of statement? I think the United States is very interesting I mean, for one thing, it's a whole series of religious cultures. It's not simply one religious culture. And The, the religious culture of the um, Eastern seaboard states is much closer to that of Western Europe, whereas the religious culture of the Midwest um, is very different to that, much more obviously Christian. And again, the religious culture of the American South still has its own distinctiveness. Um, so although... Uh, you, you, you find in the United States levels of religious observance and attendance that are, uh, strike a European as very high. Um, you also have you know, a, a much more absolute insistence that uh, religion should be Kept out of the public business of the state, um, even though paradoxically, when Europeans look at American politics, they seem seem to see religion everywhere. So there there are all sorts of paradoxes there.
0: You mentioned there that uh, we should think of American religion as a series of of religious communities rather than as as one monolith. Um, And in your chapter on ecumenism and division, you emphasise both the trend in the 20th century to see denominations come together, but also to divide. Yeah, yeah. And I think you give the example that uh, in South Korea, there are, from the beginnings of Presbyterian mission in the 19th mm. century, there are now 215 separate yeah. Presbyterian denominations. Uh, yeah. can, can you talk us through how we should think about this uh, peculiar paradox between the uniting of denominations, but also the proliferation of new divisions?
1: Yes. Um, the the story of the ecumenical movement was originally very much a Western story and as it spread to other parts of the world like India and China, um, it was uh, to a fair extent driven by uh, European concerns so that There were some criticisms in India, for example, that the attempt to form the Church of South India was working out on Indian soil, uh, Western and particularly British hang-ups about how Episcopal and non-Episcopal churches could relate. So although there are some really significant and important church unions that take place in the 20th century, I think in the global view and over the long term, What strikes me is the extraordinary diversification of forms of Christianity, um, not least through the emergence of a host of new Pentecostal or charismatic denominations um, in in independent churches in Africa and India um, and indeed uh, China. So I I think it's quite hard to discern one single narrative.
0: Fascinating. Uh, I think one of the most um, moving and perhaps even difficult chapters for me uh, in your book was the chapter about ethnic hatred. And you you, you reconstruct both uh, the cultures of the Third Reich and also uh, the events of the Rwandan genocide to to, to make some, I think, quite disturbing points about uh, the the denominations of the church's assimilation into political power. And you, you make there the point at the end of that chapter, a very telling point, I think, that large churches tend to prioritise the maintenance of political access over the safeguarding of moral independence. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that statement?
1: Well, I think the closer you are to the structures of power as as you are if you're in some sense, a national church or a uh, a church that has a very strong majority status, the more you tend to value maintaining that access to power and therefore the greater the temptations of compromise with the political establishment and with the ideologies that drive that establishment. Um, The opposite end of the spectrum faces um, diametrically opposite temptations. So if you're a small... Um, more believing church uh, a church of an independent voluntaristic kind um, you may well feel very excluded from political establishment you may be much better at critiquing it but um, the temptation is actually to withdraw into isolation and to see politics as a dirty business that you have no role in so you know, there are Uh, you know, there are competing temptations there. So, for example, in Rwanda, the Catholic Church, which was by far the largest and virtually the established church, um, faced the temptation of constant compromise with the ideologies of Belgian colonial rule, um, whereas the Small evangelical Anglican church faced the opposite temptation of being partisan in the sense of abstaining from political responsibility. Do you think,
0: uh, or do, do, do your comments on Vatican II and the changes that are introduced into the Catholic Church make you think that uh, what you describe as the battle for the heart of the Catholic Church that's happened mm. since the 1960s is is a battle that has political as well as theological consequences?
1: Yes, I'm sure it does because the Catholic Church remains such uh, an enormously powerful player in the politics of large parts of the world, um, notably Latin America, but also Africa, Western Europe, even in China where uh, the Catholic Church is uh, interestingly making its peace in in ways with the... Uh, the communist government in ways that some Catholics are not happy about. Um, So Vatican II, um, I see as uh, a sort of watershed moment, but one where the options were very much open. And it tends to be viewed retrospectively by liberal Catholics as this was when reactionary... (laughs) Tridentine or, um, uh, Vatican I Catholicism died. Well, in fact, it didn't. I think it, uh, it began to go onto the defensive and gradually lost the battles. But I think if you look at the Vatican II decrees, there are such an ambiguous mixture of decrees pointing in different directions that the battle was, was open for whoever, um, Tended to achieve the dominant interpretation.
0: It's significant, isn't it, that this uh, this council takes place in the nineteen sixties. In your book, across so many of the chapters, the nineteen sixties are a pivotal decade.
1: So,
0: mm. so, so much of the change that you identify um, happens then, or begins to happen then. How do you explain that?
1: Well, it. It may partly be fortuitous that a number of major things are going on in the 1960s. Um, it's obviously identified by a number of historians such as Hugh MacLeod as the, the key decade of religious crisis, not just in Europe, but in many parts of the, um, the Anglophone world as well, in which uh, the, the structures of um inherited European-style Christianity begin to break down uh, when human rights ideologies of uh, a quite radical kind begin to challenge Christian presuppositions. But it's also the key era of decolonization uh, and the emergence of theologies of liberation. Um, It's uh, when issues of the relationship of Christianity and communism within the Cold War become particularly salient. So all those things are going on at once and they may not necessarily be causally related, uh, but I think it does mean that out of that furnace of different uh, di- divergent or sometimes convergent trends, um, the the different sort of landscape of Christianity in the modern or postmodern world begins to emerge.
0: Your book begins with a discussion of what the Christian world looks like at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, your book ends with some consideration of Christianity in this postmodern moment as well. Yeah. As you reflect on that century of change with all of its complexity and diversity, writing as you do as an historian of faith, about which you're also mm. quite uh, quite public in the book, does, does your work over the last six years, writing this exceptionally fine book, make you more or less hopeful or cynical as to the recent history of Christianity? Has it changed your perception of movement to which uh, you recognise that you belong?
1: Well, I think every piece of major work you do um, broadens and to some extent transforms your understanding. And as a Christian, you reflect on it theologically as as well as historically. I mean, on the one hand, I think it increases one's faith as a Christian that um, history is a story of surprises. And um, when on the face of it, one might be writing off certain parts of the Christian uh, story as liable to succumb to the weight of opposition which looks extremely uh, intimidating at times uh, the narrative is actually one of survival and recovery and if you look at China extraordinary uh, growth despite the very gloomy picture that almost all Western Christians had at the beginning of the 1950s on the other hand I think it does give you a certain sort of healthy skepticism about some of the more confident predictions that Christians tend to make and some of the more triumphalist attitudes that uh, Christians still succumb to when they don't actually reflect sufficiently broadly or sufficiently historically uh, about the story of the church. (laughs)
0: Thanks, Brian. Can I ask you to begin to make some predictions of your own now? If you were going to write the next installment in this history, Christianity in the 21st Century, what would that story be about?
1: Well, I think the first thing to say is I certainly won't be doing that. (laughs) I think uh, I shall stick with what I've done. Um, Yeah, my standard answer is always to say the future is not my period. Um, I'm a historian, and because... uh, my work on modern Christian history suggests that most predictions made at the beginning of the 20th century prove spectacularly wrong. I'm very cautious about making predictions for the future. Um, I, mean, I think just as one might say um, that it was wrong to write off the, uh, the story of Christianity in much of Asia particularly China at the, beginning, uh, at the middle of the 20th century. So I might say, well, um, the current tendency to write off any future for Christianity in Western Europe or in much of North America um, ought to be resisted. Uh, there is no necessary reason why rates of decline should uh, continue infinitely. Um, uh, just as one also has to say, looking at Africa um, or some other parts of the non-Western world, there's no necessary reason why current trends of expansion should continue indefinitely.
0: Well, Brian, we have taken up a lot of your time today. Uh, Before we wind up, could you tell us what you're working on at the moment?
1: Well, um, to be honest, not an awful lot. I'm writing a number of short dictionary encyclopedia articles. Um, My current job in university uh, is almost a full-time managerial job, um, but I'm uh, finishing full-time in a year's time, and I'm wondering about going back to the early 19th century and writing a scholarly biography of the great Baptist missionary to India, William Carey.
0: Well, that would be fantastic. That would be a wonderful project. I I look forward to seeing that, and I hope you do. That would be great. Um, Listen... I'm really conscious how busy you are Brian thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today thanks for coming on to the show you're very welcome